Luke, good morning, Conduit. Do we need to take, what do we need this morning? Do we need to take a deep breath or do we need to get up and get some jumping jacks or like, are you tired or are you needing some rest? I can't really, I can't really quite read the room at this point, but something's going on and I know that there is. So <clears throat> I'm going to echo a lot of the things that Pastor Luke um, said this morning of just a welcome. We hope that you... Um, we hope that you are able to find some rest here, find a place where, um, find a place where you can settle in, where you can hear from the Lord. You can hear hear the Lord as well. So we're grateful that you're here. Uh, we do spend time during the week praying for you, and so um, the fact that you're here is not an accident or not a surprise to us because we've been praying that you would be here this morning. We started a series last week called Easter People, and this is a little bit um, a little bit of a play on a little bit of a play on words because we obviously have people that I guess exist within the Easter story in the Gospels, right? The, all these people along along the storyline that you get introduced to, and you maybe. Maybe see how they function and how they relate to the life of Jesus and what their, I guess, role is or whatever. And so we're maybe we're looking at some of those people along along the way. But there is um, there's also this this the other side of the coin is is making making this declaration is that uh, is that we you and I uh, we are Easter people. It is not just a function of being a part of the gospel stories and the lead up to the resurrection Sunday or the empty tomb that makes someone an Easter an Easter person, right? But that that you and I, even two thousand some odd years separated from the actual time and place that the tomb was empty, that you and I by faith in Jesus Christ are, are Easter people as well. That, that Easter for us is not just, not just a, a holiday that we celebrate on a particular Sunday in or around the spring of each year. Our, our whole lives, our whole individual lives, our, our whole corporate lives as the church are built upon this one truth. That Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead in triumphant victory over the penalty and power of both sin and death. And that by expressing faith in that miraculous work, we too will experience the same resurrection. Paul says uh, in his letter to the Corinthians that if Jesus Christ has not been raised, that if the resurrection is not, if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection is not the primary ground upon which we stand, then, then the, the rest of our faith just disintegrates into a pile of dust. It makes, it makes no difference at all that the resurrection is, the, is the, the central figure to our faith. And it, it's, this, it's this reality that, that reframes our entire lives. Believing by faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven and the promise of the same resurrection coming to us by faith in Jesus as was His, it is, it is something that, that should absolutely um, reorient, recenter, change um, the way that we see and experience everything. We should, be, we should see... We should see ourselves differently. We see ourselves now through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that will be ours by faith in Him. Uh, we see one another differently. We should be actively seeing the experiences of our lives differently. We experience joy differently. We see and experience death and pain and sorrow differently our our affections 
the things that are important to us, the things that we strive after, they are changed. Our desires are changed. Our, our opinions are changed. Our lives are fully and completely changed. As, as an Easter people, we can't, we can't help but to tell others about this change, that they would see the change come as a fruit of our own repentance, as we talked about last week. Our, our lives become a living witness and testimony, a, 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 megaphone, a megaphone, a bullhorn, if you will, of the, the power of the resurrection that has taken us from the old person to the new, that has put to death in us the life of sin and has called out of us the life of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And it should be unequivocally obvious to all around us that our lives are producing the fruit that John the Baptist said is in keeping with repentance. Now there are many people, like I said, in the Gospel stories that kind of highlight the run up to uh, Easter in the Gospels. Some of these people have really, really significant and um, prominent roles. For instance, next week you're going to be looking at, I think it's Peter that we're going to be looking at. Like, well, where do you even start with with Peter, like there's a, there's a thousand different things that you can talk about with Peter and the Easter people, but really excited about that. Some other people have some maybe not so significant, or at least what we think is not significant, maybe subdued, um, off, uh, not on center stage, but kind of off to the side, tangential but extraordinarily important and significant roles. This week. We're going to talk about Mary Magdalene, who, I'm going to tell you, like, <clears throat> in my opinion, okay, in my opinion, with the exception of Jesus himself, was the most significant Easter person that we're going to be looking at. Is the most significant. Um, she's a. Which I try to like, you know, when you when you study the life of a person, right, and you talk about the life of a person, there's this. Uh, sometimes there can be this struggle um, to talk about them as if they're they like not a real person, right? It's just a character in a story that you look at, but that but she that she didn't she wouldn't actually like exist and have relationships and thoughts and feelings and experiences and emotions and and she didn't like and so I, I want to be really careful to not over analyze these people in a very like um, clinical uh, laboratory sense where we dissect character and everything like that because people are way 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 more complex than even the simplicity of the way that sometimes that they're uh, um, that they're communicated to us in the gospel so that as maybe a little bit of a um, um, a little bit of a segue, or uh, just knowing my heart as we as we look at this, there's there's one there's one question that we need to talk about first, and it's maybe a little bit um, maybe not one you've ever thought about, but probably one you've thought about but didn't think that you were actually thinking about. If that makes sense. Um. I don't know if you know this or not. In fact, I don't know if we can even play this game here. Um, let's see. What, what, what name is represented the most in this room? Do we, we have several, I know we have several Johns, right? If your name is John, raise your hand. John Sawinski. All right, that was a bad example. Uh-huh. <laughs> John Staley's not here, but I was counting on John Staley being here. Jake? How many Jakes do we have? Okay, again, one, 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 the only one that matters is in the back, all right. Jake Staley is somewhere in the building. I think he's probably out. Come on. All right, let's just assume that there's four Johns in the room, okay? <laughs> Or more than one, right? Um, 
if you, without any context, right, or without any sense of like really knowing the individuals as they exist in their own lives, if I were to just stand up and say John, right, it may be confusing as to which one that I was talking about because sometimes those Johns are together doing something similar. Sometimes the Johns are apart doing... This is, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, they're apart doing their own things. I don't know. But what I'm get, the point that I'm getting at... All right, hurry up. Um, the point that I'm getting to here is that when we say the name Mary and maybe Mary Magdalene, we need to ask the question, what Mary of the Gospels are we actually talking about? Who was Mary Magdalene? Um, because there, there are multiple Marys in the Gospels. Okay? And um, I want to be clear about the, like, I want to I kind of strip away maybe a lot of the, the popular belief about who Mary Magdalene was and just let Scripture speak as clearly and as basically as possible. Okay? That's a good, that, that's a good practice, right? Now, we're not going to read our experience or our thoughts into the reality of Scripture. We're going to allow Scripture to speak, and then we're going to use wisdom and we're going to use our understanding of the, the, the whole of Scripture um, to maybe help clarify things that are not clear. And that's something that we're going to do with Mary Magdalene today, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. People in the ancient Near East, um, which is where the Gospels are set, right? Uh, people in the ancient Near East were, were often known uh, not just for their first and last name, but by where they were from and who they were related to. Okay? So now we say things like, well, it's John Sawinski. And we, we know, like, it's a very, very, uh, it, it's very easy to distinguish who that person is. Or it's John Staley. And it's very easy to distinguish who that person is because they have a first name and a last name, and those names maybe are spelled differently, even the first names. But, but this was not always the case. There wasn't a kind of a first and last name in the ancient Near East. People were known by, by where they were from or who they were related to. Here's kind of two examples to prove the point. Um, oftentimes in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as what? Jesus of Nazareth, right? Nazareth wasn't his last name, nor was, his, nor was it a family name. Nazareth was the, the town that he was from. It was, where he, it, was, it was where he came from. It distinguished him in some ways from other people named Jesus in his time, which was an extraordinarily common name. Okay? Um, the Hebrew would have been translated um, kind of in English more closely as who we call like Joshua, right? But it was a common name. And so Jesus of Nazareth distinguished him from other well-known Jesuses. Um, another example would be uh, the two disciples, James and John, the what? The sons of Zebedee, right? Um, that, they were, that they were known not by where they came from, but who they were related to. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee, and that kind of distinguished them from others. So the question then for us is, who was this Mary? It was, it was, it was Mary that was from a small town called Magdala. And Magdala was a town on the western shore, the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And if you can picture the Holy Land, where you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, right? And then the Jordan River ran down and it runs into the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, okay? And so, so Magdala was a town on the western shore of the northern part of the, um, of the Israelite nation um, on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where this Mary was from. And so that's why she's known as Mary from Magdala or Mary of Magdalene, as it was said. Now, 
Here's the thing. As important of a character as she was in the ministry and in the Gospels, uh, in the ministry of Jesus and in the Gospels, and you're going to see how important a little bit, we actually don't have a whole lot of biblical information or stories about Mary Magdalene specifically. The reason being is that we don't really have actual good evidence that Mary of Magdalene was the same Mary that we see in other places in Scripture that have been classically thought or taught to be about her. There are several stories scattered throughout the Gospels, different Gospel accounts, where you get an allusion to either it being a woman named Mary, or there's a similar instance that Mary of Magdalene like, um, was involved in, and then you see this other similar but different story in another Gospel, and we kind of sometimes make the, the assumption that, well, oh, that's the same story, and that's actually the same Mary, even though she's not named here, but she's named here. And that's not necessarily or always the case. As you approach the, the name or the character or the person of Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, you, you, this, this, um, this may have popped up in your mind because sometimes um, it's been kind of classically taught or thought that this was her. Well, Mary, Mary, was, Mary was the woman that wept at Jesus' feet and then washed Jesus' feet with her, t- um, with her tears and then wiped them with her hair. Um, we know that from the Gospels, Luke chapter 7, that she was a, that she was a um, some, some uh, translations say harlot, other translations say prostitute, some translations say just um, uh, a, wom- a woman of darkness or wickedness or brokenness. But where do we get this idea from? Because the story in Luke chapter 7 doesn't name the woman's name at all. In fact, it doesn't name, it doesn't name the woman as Mary. It simply lets her know that it was a woman. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is a, a story that Pastor Luke preached on just a few weeks ago. Right? But never in this account are we, do we get um, any indication that this, that this woman has a name, or that her name is Mary, or even further, that her name is Mary Magdalene. So where do we get the idea, maybe the classical idea, that, well, this was obviously Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene was a, a woman who had a sinful life, and she was the one that, who anointed Jesus or kissed Jesus' feet or let her tears um, be what she um, washed Jesus' feet with. Where do we get this idea from? And you might be saying in your head, but, but, but wait a second, Pastor. There's another Gospel writer, not the Gospel of Luke, but there's another Gospel writer who records uh, who records this story, and he does name Mary. Okay, well, that comes, that story is from John chapter 12. Another gospel writer, right, recording the life uh, and the ministry of Jesus, right? This was not uncommon to have, to have several people writing about, um, writing about an important figure like Jesus was, and they would write from their perspective, what they saw, what they experienced, what they heard, what they personally thought was important over what someone else thought was important. If, if you and I went to go see the same movie and then were asked separately to describe the movie afterwards, we would tell the same general story, but there would be instances of that story that stuck out particularly to us. Moments that we connected with, with characters that we saw as more important than another, words or phrases or themes that were particularly powerful for us, and we would write based on our perspective, our memory of the movie. If the details were were different at times, it wouldn't negate the truth of one or the other. It would just communicate the truthfulness of human experience as we're seeing a story unfold. And that's the same with the Gospel writers, right? That That they wrote from their perspective. And so, 
And so we see John writes this story in John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Jesus is anointed at Bethany. And this is right after the death of Lazarus. Okay? And um, it says that the, uh, a dinner was thrown in honor for Jesus. And John chapter 12 starts at verse 3. It says, Then Mary. Mary who? We don't know, right? Just, just, just Mary at this point. Um, or if we look back a few verses, we see it's, it's the Mary that was already always associated with Martha and Lazarus, right? That Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then Judas, you know, threw a fit about it. Um, and uh, Jesus corrected him, right? But okay, we see this. We see this other story where Jesus' feet is being, uh, where where or where Jesus is being anointed again, and Jesus' feet are being mentioned, and and wiping Jesus' feet with hair is being mentioned. Now the name Mary here is mentioned, but it's mentioned not in connection with Magdala or or Magdalene, but it's it's written in connection with Martha. This is the Mary who has a sister named Martha and who just previously, a few chapters back in John chapter 11, saw Jesus raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. The story is very, very similar, but it is decidedly different. In this account, in the Gospel of John, as opposed to the Gospel of Luke, um, uh, Mary uses an expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, not just her tears. And she does so, this is even more important, right? She does so not out of an act of humility and repentance like the woman in Luke chapter 7, but as an act of honor and worship of Jesus for what he had done in the life of Lazarus. We see that at the beginning of the chapter that that this banquet that Jesus was at was not in the house of a Pharisee like it was in, John, or in Luke chapter 7. And that, the, and that the banquet was very purposeful towards honoring Jesus for the work that He had done or the thing that He had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, it says in John chapter 12, verse 2. Um, and so, the, the, even the way in which, or the motivation by which, or the reason by which, whoever the woman was in Luke chapter 7, we don't know, because she's not named, right? And the Mary, who was the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus in John chapter 12, approached Jesus in this situation differently. Now, what was maybe even more significant here is that we also see that this Mary and her sister Martha and brother Lazarus are from a town um, named Bethany. Right? Jesus is anointed at Bethany. He, he traveled to Bethany in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so we might ask the question, okay, can we use that information to maybe pinpoint if this was the same Mary that we know is from Magdala, which is in the northern kingdom on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And if you have a, maybe a Bible that has the Bible, or that has the maps in the back, or you pick up a Bible, or you just Google it on your phone, you will see that Magdala is, on the, is in the northern kingdom on the Sea of Galilee, but Bethany is in the southern kingdom, days and days of a walk away, more towards the western shore of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. The cities are not even close. Not even close to one another. So the only, the only if, we're taking, if we're taking what we know about the Bible at face value and honestly and seriously, the only conclusion that we can come to is that this is a different story. Not the same one told two different ways. So Mary Magdalene then was not or is not 
the humble and repentant harlot from Luke chapter 7. She's also not the Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in John chapter 12. We know that she isn't the other Mary that we know from the Bible, who is what? The mother of Jesus, right? So the best that we can surmise is that when the Scripture speaks of Mary Magdalene, it is speaking of just her. Independent character from the other Marys that we see in Scripture, not trying to connect her to other Marys or make, or make uh, veiled allusions when there really is not the evidence to support that. But that does not mean that the Gospels have nothing to say about Mary Magdalene. They have a small amount to say in a really, really, really big way. The references are small. The significance is extraordinary. The first place that we see Mary Magdalene by name mentioned in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 8. If you look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, you'll see this. <clears throat> After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. And Susanna, and many others, it says. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the first instance that we see Mary Magdalene. Jesus had been traveling around to different towns and villages proclaiming the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And Luke describes who is with Jesus as he's going about his ministry. Uh, the twelve. We would expect that the 12 disciples would be in any description of Jesus going around and doing his ministry. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, <laughs> we're going to come back to that one in a second. Okay? Um, but then he goes on to qualify... Um, what these three women in particular and the others that are not named, kind of what role or what they were doing in the ministry of Jesus. And he says, they were supporting them out of their own means. Mary, Joanna, uh, Susanna, supporting him, supporting them, um, uh, Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. We're going to get back to that one too. Let's go back to that interesting little comment that Luke has about um, Mary of Magdalene, whom seven demons had come out of. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, what do we know? Uh, it's important, I think, like as I've always, as I've stated before this morning, and as we, we always try to do, is to ensure that we're, we're not reading any of, we're not reading any of our thoughts, opinions, or even experiences into the Bible, interpreting what we see in the Bible through the lens of what we see in our world or we've experienced or we think or we read a book on or whatever, right? That we allow Scripture to speak for itself, right? And to speak clearly to us because we believe by faith that, that God is not trying to confuse us through his word, right? That he is, he is actively revealing himself through Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of his word to us, okay? And so, um, and so what do we know then about 
seven demons coming out of Mary Magdalene. Well, we know just that in particular, right? Um, we know that Mary had significant, it seems, infirmity, sickness, uh, possession, or oppression that went beyond what anyone would have described as uh, normal demon possession. As if there is such a thing as normal um, demon possession. What is clear is that, is that Mary was um, significantly oppressed by the demonic. Uh, the indication of seven here could have very, very reasonably meant literally seven demons. Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right? And it also could have been one of the ways, and biblical writers often did this, that Luke, the writer of this gospel, sought to communicate simply that Mary was very, very, very oppressed. Like, not just kind of oppressed, not a little, not dealing with a little thing here and there, but like, but like almost hopelessly, um, hopelessly depressed. Seven, like a significant number, right? Very, very, very oppressed. Now, somewhere along the line of Jesus' ministry, he encountered Mary Magdalene and set her free from the chains of these seven um, demons and the demonic oppression that had wrapped her up in life. We also don't know what that demonic possession looked like. We also don't know what demonic oppression or possession looks like in every case. It's become, uh, I think, somewhat fashionable in our world or in our culture to take one of two perspectives on the demonic and on possession um, in particular. And that, is, and that is to think a lot about it and to think much about it. And the other perspective is to think none, of it, none about it or to think very little about it. You either... You either you either focus on it as a, as a primary lens through which you see the world and all relationships, right? The demonic. Or you say, it's not important. It doesn't matter. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look at it. It's, it's like just poo-poo on it, right? Um, so it's become kind of fashionable to take one or, one or the other of those dichotomies on the scale and to, and to lean heavily in one way um, or the other. But, but what is clear is this, all right? Jesus, in his ministry, regularly encountered people who were afflicted with demons and regularly went about the task of setting them free from their possession. If our contemporary sensibilities about the supernatural, um, in particular the demonic, lead us to a place of wanting to jettison every instance in the New Testament of, new, uh, of, demonic, of, of demonic activity, then we will be, we'll be cutting out quite a bit of the ministry of Jesus throughout the Gospels, as well as his or exhortation to his followers to go out and do the same. So you, can, you can't have it both ways, right? If you, if you want to completely ignore every instance of the demonic because it's like, oh, it's all supernatural and ghost-like and I don't really want to talk about it or get it or whatever, then you're going to have to cut out a lot of your New Testament, right? Because Jesus, Jesus regularly did this. Jesus regularly interacted with people who were oppressed by demons and he set them free and then he would tell his disciples and his followers, go, pray for the sick, um, uh, preach the good news of the kingdom of God, exercise demons, right? It was a part of what he encouraged his followers to do. What is, what is clear in the New Testament is that the presence of the demonic does not and should not elicit any fear from those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. There's not much that we do know about the demonic. What we do know is this, is that there is no reason to fear when we profess the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
Because through Jesus, through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives within us. The same Spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of God the Father is the same Spirit and power that lives in us by faith in Him. And we stand, we stand firm in the place of faith, proclaiming that every knee, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess, both on the earth and above the earth and below the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in heaven. In short, There is no need for us to live in fear of demonic activity because by faith in Jesus Christ, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and has authority over all things lives in you and I. But this should tell us also something about, I want to say like, should tell us something about Mary, but it also, I think, should tell us something about um, um, about the Jesus that healed Mary, and about the way that Jesus calls people into serving Him and serving others in building the kingdom. Okay, because listen, it's really clear uh, that Mary. Mary didn't come out of the womb following Jesus. Mary, Mary didn't, Mary didn't, well, I mean, maybe she did, right? But like, I'm just kind of euphemistically. Mary didn't grow up in a nice family, right? She didn't grow up in a Christian home. She wasn't the person that you would, you would look at and you'd be like, well, yeah, obviously she has the gifts and the graces and the ability and the skills and, and, and the significance to do tremendous things for God and, and building his kingdom, tremendous things for, for God in the world. It's obvious. Look at her. Like she's just, she's all put together. She's always been put together and everything has always gone right for her. This was not Mary's story. Yet we see and, and are going to see that, that she had a significant role in the ministry of Jesus, so much so that, like, I can't say that because I'm going to ruin the end of my sermon. Okay? We're building up here. But listen, sometimes, sometimes, when, when we are struggling, when you and I are struggling to understand God's purposes for our life, we can, we can fall. It's really easy to fall into this trap of believing that the place that we've come from has essentially disqualified us from really making a difference in God's kingdom going forward. The place that I was disqualifies me from being in the place that I think God wants me to be in the future. It's just kind of what I had to do or the lot that I lived or whatever the case may be. Maybe this is the life that you have lived before um, or some of the choices that you've made or are still struggling to make. Maybe it's what you believed or that you didn't believe that you think is disqualifying you. What is clear is that God does not put a time stamp on when you must have it all put together in order to be used in a significant way for other people's healing and restoration and for the building of God's kingdom purposes in you. Because make no mistake about this. Jesus' relationship with Mary Magdalene emphasizes this one significant point is that God is in the business of redemption. That if there is a business that God is in, it is the business of redemption. Jesus healed Mary Magdalene of significant, significant infirmity. But her past and that infirmed past wasn't a disqualification for how she could be used in the future. In fact, we may even believe, and I think rightly so, that it was out of Mary's tremendous brokenness 
that she was able to have such significant role in the ministry of Jesus going forward. She wasn't under some illusion that she had it all together and that other people needed to get it all together. She was fully aware of her own brokenness and out of the magnitude of her healing welled up a passion that was not rivaled by any of the other disciples. It was her brokenness that moved her to service for God. It was her brokenness that gave her internal significance. It was not the fact that she was all put together or had all the answers or grew up in the right family or believed the right thing or had the right direction from the beginning. Mary wasn't just someone who followed Jesus from off stage. Listen, we do a lot of thinking or we do a lot of talking about the disciples. The disciples this and the disciples that and Peter, James, and John and Thomas and Judas and Bartholomew and like, oh, these guys, right? Guys, they did it. Ah, they built a church. I don't know, I got bad news for you guys. Or for us guys. Okay? I got some bad news. Um, Mary and a handful of other woman, women made sure that the ministry of Jesus and the disciples were fully supported out of their own means, says in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Yes. Okay? What does this mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that Mary, Joanna, and Susanna made sure that Jesus and the disciples had every resource they needed to continue to do the work that they needed to do or were setting out to do. Mary, in another way, you could say it like this. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna paid for the ministry of Jesus and the disciples to happen. They provided the resources necessary for them to um, eat. Now, this shouldn't surprise us if we think clearly about it that the, the ministry of Jesus costs money. Right? We, get no, we get no instance or we get no like, clues within the gospel that like, Jesus is just fabricating Roman currency out of thin air by a miraculous work Right? So that he could, that they could pay and afford to feed themselves. Also, what is not always abundantly clear in the scripture, but what is abundantly clear throughout Roman history, is that it was not free to travel in the Roman occupied territories. It's not New York State that came up with tolls for roads, okay? It was the Romans. And so even to walk on a road from one part of the kingdom to another often required money. To go to the temple often required a tax. Right? There, were, there were multiple times and places where Jesus and the disciples needed actual, physical, like money resources in order to continue to do the work that they were going to do. Mary used what she had so that Jesus and others could do what they do. They were a team. Jesus would have seen and understood this, and so would have the disciples. It's not clear to us, but it would not have been anything other than abundantly clear to Jesus and the disciples. It was the embodiment of the principles that Paul the Apostle Paul later talked about in his letter to the Corinthians that though we are many and though we are different, we all make up one body, each part doing its specific work so that the work of the whole can be accomplished. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Peter could not say to Mary, we're good. We got this under control. Mary could not say to Peter, listen, we don't need you, Peter. It was them coming together to, to um, embody a, a whole mission and whole kingdom-building perspective. 
Listen, there is no indication that Mary was upset that she didn't get the same place of, I guess you could call it prominence, as Peter. But rather, that the work of Jesus in her and the work of Jesus through her led her to a place of saying, whatever it is that I can do to ensure that more people have the experience that I had, I will do it. It was, not a, it was not a place of like, well, I need this role and I need this place and I need to have this title and I want this type of significance in the work that you're doing, Jesus. This is what I want to be involved in and this is how I... like. There's no other, other part or role that is more important than this part and role, Jesus, so that's what I want. And for Mary, it was more like, a, I don't care whatever role you put me in, however I can be of service, I just want to see more people having the experience of freedom through faith in you, Jesus, as, as we possibly can. So what is it that you need? Is it my resources? Is it my support? Is it my help? Is it my preaching? Is it my what is it? I will do it. An important question is, we see, okay, Luke chapter 8, first instance of Mary. Well, do we see Mary Magdalene anywhere else in the Gospels, or is that it? Like, hmm. How important really could she be in? Um, Where else do we see Mary in the Gospels? Where else do we see her? Uh, We see her in the most significant place in all the Gospels. We see her at the empty tomb. All four four Gospel accounts say essentially the same thing. And that same thing is this. On the morning of the third day, Mary, some Gospel accounts um, bring other women with her, but Mary, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus as would have been customary in Jewish culture and practice to anoint the body. When they arrived, the tomb was empty and it sent them into a flurry of emotions about what could have possibly happened. Who stole Jesus' body? Where has our Lord gone? The story goes on to read, right? We don't want to give too much up before Easter Sunday because I think I'm going to be preaching on this again on Easter. That in His glorified body, Jesus revealed Himself to Mary as the resurrected Lord and King and told her to go and tell the others. All four Gospels say the same thing. Now, let this sink in for a second. When we talk about those that proclaim the glorious hope and miracle of the resurrection in the Bible, who do we think of? Well, we think of the big heavy hitters, right? We think of Peter in the book of Acts preaching the gospel and thousands coming to be saved, right? We may think of Paul preaching to the churches in and around Rome or preaching to the Gentiles that this Jewish Messiah is for them as well. We may think of our modern-day megachurch pastors who have book deals and TV shows who are, who are preaching by extension to hundreds of thousands of people proclaiming the gospel on the proverbial mountaintops. Listen. But who was the first one? The first one. Who was the first one to lay eyes on the resurrected Jesus? And who was the very first one to go and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and was very, very, very alive? It was the formerly demon-possessed woman that we know of as Mary Magdalene. It was not the wise and learned. It was not the powerful and influential. It was a woman who sat in the background of Jesus' ministry and quietly and faithfully served and provided for its resources. She was the first one to preach to proclaim, 
Jesus has come back from the dead. That's right. Where were all the men that Jesus had entrusted his ministry to? John says in chapter 20, verse 19, they were hiding because they were afraid. Mary was at the tomb. And this wasn't the first time that we see the disparity between the courage and faithfulness of the woman called Mary of Magdalene vis-a-vis the 12 apostles that were to carry this message throughout the rest of the world. Because we see in John chapter 20 also that who was with Jesus at the crucifixion? It was not Peter, James, and John, right? It was not the ones that had seen the miracles and heard the teaching. It was Mary. She was there. Everyone else had scattered and ran. Not a good look, man. Why such uncommon faith? What made Mary follow Jesus? That was not a burp. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a child. Why such uncommon faith? What made Mary follow Jesus so closely and so faithfully? I think it's wrapped up in the way that the Gospel of John describes how after seeing, after leaving the tomb on that morning, she burst through the doors to tell the others what had happened at the tomb. And that's kind of wrapped up in that. In John chapter 20, verse 18, Mary, I get this picture of Mary just being like, kicking down that door. The disciples are hiding behind. And she waltzes into the room in John chapter 20, verse 18, and she says this, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Not just Jesus, the kind man, full of great teaching, wise beyond his years. She had seen the Lord. She knew Jesus. Why does Mary have such uncommon faith? Why was she so faithful? Why did she follow Jesus so closely? She knew Jesus as the one as the only one that could and did set her free from bondage, evil, and darkness. Jesus Jesus wasn't just a hobby for Mary. Jesus was the Lord. Jesus was the King. Jesus was the center, not just of her life, but of her whole story of her very existence. Everything in Mary's life revolved around her Lord Jesus. And she left it all for Him. She left it all behind. She pushed all her chips into the center of the proverbial table. She stood by Him in death as He died so that she could have life through Him. Jesus, or Mary saw Jesus as Lord. I think the disciples were still trying to figure out what had happened. I think it is incredibly significant and important that, or, or that Mary can be an incredibly and significantly important example for our own lives and our own uh, walk with Jesus. How do we follow Jesus as faithfully, as closely as Mary did here? A few points, um, three, three main points, and then we're going to end for today. Uh, here's what we learned, or here's what I hope we learned. 
Okay? Jesus is in the business of redemption. And there is no darkness too dark. There is no past so secretive. There is no pain that is so great that He cannot bring healing and purpose to all that you have experienced. This was Mary's story. This was not, this was not um, just um, individual to Mary as well. Because it wasn't even about Mary. It was about the character of God in Jesus that did this. Right? It is the character of... There was, there was nothing special about Mary that he decided to heal her and not others. It, was, it, was, it more displays the character of God in Jesus that this is what he does. This is who he is. He takes the broken. He takes the hurting. He takes those in bondage and he rips the chains off of them and he brings healing to all that has uh, kept them in darkness. Mary's life is, is that on blast. Number two, what can we learn from Mary's life, Mary's ministry, is that any role and every role in building a kingdom for Jesus is significant, important, and indispensable. Well, I don't have, I don't have leadership. I don't have title. I don't have gifts. I don't have graces. I, um, I, I come from the wrong side of the tracks. You don't know the life that I lived. I'm not like I'm still growing in my faith. Listen, any role and every role in building a kingdom for Jesus is significant, important, and indispensable. Right? The people that come in and help to um, help to put together curriculum for conduit kids during the week when none of y'all are here except uh, except Pastor Luke and I. Right? Indispensable towards building the kingdom of Jesus Christ in your, in your kids' hearts and lives, right? Those who serve on a weekly, monthly rotation in, on our safety team or in Conduit Kids or out at the, out at the coffee bar or on the worship team, right? It, with, 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 without any fanfare, without any, without any title, without any, without any, any, any recognition, they're standing in a place of extraordinary kingdom significance, knowing that every role and any role that builds, that sets another brick in the building of a kingdom of God is significant and powerful and important, and that none of those roles should be overlooked ever. Third and final is this. Is that Jesus? Jesus does not reserve the task of proclaiming the gospel just for the professionals. If you have seen the Lord, go and live a life that is a bullhorn for His healing in you for his power to redeem for his goodness to give you purpose for his kingdom do not wait for do not wait for me to do it do not wait for someone else to do it god god has not called me to do it in that situation in your life god has called you to do it and he has placed you in that place with those people in that moment in their midst for such a time as this, I have seen the Lord in my life. I have seen the Lord. And he, has, and he has changed me. And He has set me free. And He has redeemed me. And He has renewed me. And He has restored me. Break down. Kick open the door. I have seen the Lord. All those who are afraid. I know you're afraid. I know you don't know what the next step is. I know you're confused. I have seen the Lord. 
Believe on the faith that's displayed in me for God's goodness and redemption in your life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples in an upper room. Okay? And they were sitting around a table. And as they were sitting around the table, um, he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the bread. And then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat of this bread, all of you. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup. And after giving thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup, he gave the cup to his disciples. And he said, take and drink of this, all of you. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we come together as a community of faith who, who, communally, and, who communally and as one body both believe and receive in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We believe that the broken body of Jesus Christ, that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is, is perfectly and wholly and completely um, uh, offered, offered to us as, as a gift. That, that Jesus comes right, to offer us in Him forgiveness from our sins. When, when we come up on a Sunday morning for communion, what, what we're doing is we're, we're standing up as both individuals and together as one body to say that, I, Lord, I, I come, I come in faith to receive the gift of forgiveness that has been offered to me in Jesus Christ. Not, not forgiveness that is mediated from the church, right? I'm not proclaiming forgiveness over you. Right? It, is, it is the ministry of Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit that is present here with us and present in the elements that we're using here that offers to you the supernatural gift of His grace that brings witness to your soul that you have been forgiven through Jesus. And so, uh, that, that is why we, we, we make the, the open, open declaration that you do not need to be a member of this church. You do not be, need to be a member of any church to come and have communion with us this morning or to, to take part in communion with us. You need only to come forward in the, um, in the anticipation and in the expectation that, that coming forward to, to, um, to, to meet with Jesus right, is, is you saying, Jesus, I, re- I, I, I ask for, I receive uh, by faith the forgiveness of sins that is offered to me in what you have done on the cross. I repent of my sin. I confess it before you. I... I, I it's almost like we, we, we're, we're living out or we're, we're practicing the, the gospel story itself. That we're receiving the gift of Jesus' broken body. That we're receiving the gift of Jesus' shed blood. Not as just a midday snack, but as an expression and reception of the faith that is offered to us in Him. We take communion here... Um, I guess it's, it's a method called intinction, which means that you, it's just a fancy way of saying when you come up front here, you, you can rip off a piece of the bread. Right? You can 
dip it in the cup, and you can take communion right, right then at that point. You don't have to, there's no permission giving, right? right? Rip it, dip it, take it, okay? If you would, um, if you would the, the prayer kneelers are open for you. If you would like to spend some time in, in prayer up here, um, after doing that, you spend as much time as you want. You come up through the center aisles. Uh, Pastor Luke and I will be up here uh, prepared to do that for you. And then you can return to your seats and uh, the outside aisles. I'll have the worship team come up first. Uh, let's serve them first so that they can go up on uh, stage and then we will uh, we'll invite the rest of you up. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse them from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for He who is promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Conduit, you... You are a loved people. Go in peace. Have a good week.